Well, this morning uh, we are starting a new study that's going to take us through the month of October. And I've appreciated hearing from a bunch of you guys that are very excited about this study this morning. And, and it is under the umbrella of the title of Would You Protest? And, you know, this is a series that has been in our hearts to do for a very long time. You'll see why. But it happens to be emerging at a time that is a strange question. Uh, would you protest today? Uh, has, this series has nothing to do with the NFL. It has nothing to do with the national anthem. There's no monuments that are involved. There, there's, there's nothing of what you and I think of protest uh, to mean involved in this series in particular. Um, but it does raise an interesting question. Why do people protest? And I don't want to get lost in the current element of this, but I also don't want to just make this a historic study. It is very much a study that affects how you and I live and what we believe and how we live with what we believe. So why do people protest? There's a lot of that going on these days. And I'm not necessarily trying to get you on one side or the other of the issue, but you do recognize that at the center of protest is a side to be taken, right? That's what protesting does. It creates sides and it makes you choose sides or, or self-analyze to see what, what side of this am I on? How do I feel about this? Right? So people do things in public. Right? We really wouldn't be much of a protest if you know, Colin Kaepernick or whoever was just kneeling down privately in their own bedroom. Right? Kneel down and take a knee. That doesn't mean anything to anybody, right? When you protest, you do something publicly because you believe something that you think other people ought to be believing as well. And so you do that in a public way so that it it touches their life in a way that says, hey, what do you think about this? Do you agree with me? Or do you disagree? Or are you indifferent about it? Do you believe so strongly that this ought to be fixed? Right? That's what's happening when people protest. Right? Well, here's what protest means. The definition for protest in your outline there. It means to express strong disapproval of or disagreement with something. To state or affirm something in strong or formal terms. Well, interesting, as protesting is taking place all around us, this month marks the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Right? So most of us have some category of awareness that this, there is this thing called Protestantism. And if you read that word too fast, you miss the fact that central to the word Protestant is the word protest. And so this entire concept finds its origins in a, a young monk in a small town of Wittenberg, Germany, a town of about 2,000 people, was observing practices and beliefs in the church during his life that he felt were wrong. And he felt so strongly about them being wrong that he began to write his thoughts down and he wrote down 95 thoughts, 95 statements, 95 theses. And he did what people did in that day. He protested by saying, we need to talk about this. 
We need to publicly talk about this. These were private convictions, if you will, that he had. But they needed to be discussed publicly. So he did what people did in that day. He went to the church and he went to the door of the church and he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And the reason why they would do that is, is that, was a, that was a bit of a public bulletin board is what it was. And so it would, it would not have been the only theses there. It would not have been the only statement. That could have been announcements. It could have been all kinds of things that were nailed there. But when he nailed that there, he was making a statement about what he believed. And that needed to be discussed publicly given what other people believed and what other people were practicing. Now in doing that... Something basic to human belief is about to happen. Now we need to discuss carefully today as we can get into this series. Martin Luther took a position that there were certain beliefs that were vital and critical and non-negotiable. He didn't nail up 95 ideas that were central to everybody ought to be free to do these things whatever way they want. I just want my way to be the way. He looked at these ideas and he said there are certain things, certain beliefs that are so sacred, so fundamental, so important that they are what I would call hills to die on. You can't adjust these. You have to leave them exactly as they are. Otherwise, you run the risk of destroying something else when you go to adjust these. So what comes out of this day in which he nails these 95 thoughts to the church door is the Protestant Reformation, which is going to center around five ideas. And we're going to study those five ideas. Because those five ideas remain central to Christianity. To not just historic Christianity, but to present day Christianity. To whatever it is you and I are trying to live out for the glory of God. Those five ideas are going to frame our next five weeks. So throughout the month of October, uh, a little bit beyond that, we're going to be in this series called Would You Protest? And it's titled Would You Protest? Because we're going to look back and we're going to see that some people did protest. And they put their lives on the line. They took incredible risks. Some of them lost their lives. Because they dared speak out publicly about what they believed to be wrong in the belief system of the church. Many people lost their lives. But we're not doing this study so that we can talk about history alone. These things remain truly issues for today. So my question for me or for any of us is, would you protest? When you look at these ideas, are they hills to die on? Are there things that you say, hey, that's, that's important. That's got to be believed. That's got to be believed that way. Or are you flexible in these kinds of areas to where it's okay if people believe something. If they believe something different, that's, that's all right. Well, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about, is it right to protest? And I just want to take a second to do that because in our modern setting, uh, it's a little bit challenging for us to even agree that any kind of protest should be taking place. Secondly, I want us to understand the history of protesting in the church and in the Bible. Right? This is not unique to the 16th century in 1517 when this got nailed up. 
It's not unique to that. And I think that's important to see. Otherwise, you will think something about this that's, that's a distortion. But let's answer this first question. Is it right to protest? If you make a statement today in public that sounds at all like you're saying something could be absolutish. Something could be right and other things could be wrong. If you do that in public and you listen to the news media handle people doing that, there is, there is hostility. People are provoked. There is a how dare you because you sound like you might be telling other people that their view isn't right. And that just feels like you're not supposed to do that, right? That feels like, oh, that's out of, that's out of line. And, and you, Christians who are supposed to be loving, you, you, you pick a fight, you take a stance. It, it feels like it's, it's not even a godly thing to do. We shouldn't talk that way. We shouldn't speak about things that way. And that is very much a modern construct. That is what we would call a postmodern philosophy. Right? And it does us some well to pay attention to the ideas that are around us because our world is uniquely always training and teaching us. Right? So here's what postmodern thinking does. It's one, of, one of the handbooks of Christian belief says this. There is little doubt that the cultural mood in the West has changed significantly since about 1980. One obvious tension between postmodernism and traditional Christian belief is the former's criticism of any outlook that claims to have a unique or privileged insight into reality. The idea of divine revelation is seen as inconsistent with postmodernism's emphasis on the individual's right to believe as she pleases. An endorsement of an individual's views without any attempt to evaluate them critically. Right, that's the time frame in which you and I live. Right, an idea exists, an idea about human nature, an idea about how to live, an idea about human behavior. These get into the public arena and people publish these ideas. And today, the discussion is no longer about, is this thing right? That's not what anybody wants to talk about anymore. What they want to talk about and what they're going to get offended about is the thought that, do I have the right to believe whatever I want? That's the debate. When something gets into the public arena, nobody even wastes any time anymore saying, is that a good idea? Is that a right idea? The only debate is if you come off sounding like you don't endorse my idea, do you? I can tell you don't endorse my, you don't validate my right as an individual to think the way I want to think, have the beliefs that I want to have. This idea of nailing something up and calling everybody to subscribe to it? Not in our day. That's not the way we do things. And listen to this thought. I didn't write this out in your outline, but I wrote it down in mine. Postmodern thinking unbolts any sense of absolute authority. It disposes of the idea that all of humanity answers to one thing or one being. It shifts the emphasis of right or wrong 
into a personal and subjective space rather than a collective and communal context. It empowers the individual's preferences and perspective and is hostile to any sense of collective right or wrong. Right, now let me just tell you philosophically, this is not how the world has been in the past. But it is how our modern world is. And it's creating this strange arena to function in that really is, it's just not tenable. Because we're called to be collective communal beings. We live in families. Families live in societies. Societies live in nations and there's governance and there's coming together. And so ideas have to sit in a pluralized community. It's not just a matter of whether this is right for you personally. Whatever is right for you personally at some point is going to spill over into somebody else's right for them, isn't it? Isn't this the debate that we're having in so many of these protests today? Somebody's got a view about life, about history, about what's right for them. And it's not enough for it to be right for them. There needs to be a collective sense of whether it's right or not. And that's why people get outraged. And that's why people protest. Because other people are not affected by their personal view of what's right and wrong. Because we're called to live communally. So this idea is not going to work. But here's the real concern. In our culture, it starts to feel wrong for you to say anything else is wrong. Because the the chief governing principle is everybody's got the right to have their own view and their own way and their own labels and their own thoughts and practices. So is it even right? Right? We're going to revisit a protest from 500 years ago. Is it even right to protest things? Is it right To believe that something could be so fundamentally right that it's right for everyone? Is that even right to do? Because I'm telling you, you and I, you know, we get a lot of secondhand smoke from our culture. And whether you've thought about this or not, you start feeling like it's wrong to sound that way. Because it's just not what people sound like. And if you watch the evening news enough or some of the debate programs, put your finger on where the outrage is. The outrage is not about whether something is right. It's about whether that person has the right. And so you start being taught by that too. And here we come to church history and we're going to come to the Bible today. And we might be shocked to find out the Bible protests things. Is it right to protest? Well, let's see. Here's the history of protesting in the church. It's not new. It doesn't start in 1517 at this moment. It has always been wherever there have been concrete ideas to be believed. Wherever God has revealed anything is true, there has been protests, right? If you move through church history, there would be many more protests than this. But let me just give you a running start. In 144 AD, Marcion was protested. For teaching there was no connection between the Old Testament and New Testament or between the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians. There was an idea in place and he came along and taught something else associated with but not consistent with. And a protest rose up 
and they opposed him. Manichaeism was protested in 242, 100 years later, for denying the humanity of Christ. Arianism was protested 100 years later for teaching that Christ is a created being and not God by nature. Pelagianism was protested in 431 AD for claiming that man can attain salvation by works, that the very nature of man has a goodness in him that if he'll just activate and act upon, then he can achieve what God requires in salvation. And there would be many more. Speed forward to 867 AD, the Eastern Orthodox Church in Constantinople rejects the Roman Pope's rule. Right? There, there came a time in which the Bishop of Rome began to act in a way that gives oversight beyond Rome into the the larger church body. And there comes a time in which the Bishop of Constantinople says, no, no, no. Who, wait, wait, who are you to have authority over us and over all? And so they disagreed with that. They protested. And their means of protesting was to say, we are now going to sever ties with the church in Rome. And they became the Eastern Orthodox group of churches. Closer to the Reformation, if you sped forward, you'd have some names that pop up before Martin Luther. He's not the first person to herald these ideas. And and I think that's fairly important because Martin Luther gets characterized sometimes in history. He's a hero to some. He's a crazy man to others. Like he came up with some of these ideas that, that were just crazy. This guy was crazy. He really didn't have a lot of new ideas. He was addressing some of the same ideas that for hundreds of years, people in the church had been saying, that that doesn't seem right. Why did we start doing that that way? That's not what the Bible sounds like. So for hundreds of years, this had been happening. It was a man named John Wycliffe in church history. He was called the morning star of the Reformation because at this, at this point in his life, he's in the 1300s, things were coming to a head even back then. Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, believing that God's word was the final authority for belief and practice, not the church or councils. And that the common person could understand what God revealed in his word. You have the original Bible, which we're going to talk about next week. The original Bible you have in Greek and in Hebrew language. And in 410, Jerome translates the Bible into Latin. So this is the the first translation of the Bible. is not into the common language of the people. It's into Latin. So you'd have the average person couldn't read the Bible. And men like John Wycliffe come along. Say, but everybody should be able to read the Bible. God has made himself known to everyone. So he translates the Bible into the English language. That's why we have Wycliffe Bible translators today. Because this man had a conviction. And he saw things in scripture that he thought should be applied. And those things got him into trouble. He was, he was scheduled to be killed, but he actually passed out preaching and died shortly after that in 1384. There was a council that met later that found him and his teachings to be heretical. So what they did was they dug his bones up and burned his bones to death. And 
wanted to make sure that he didn't have any chance of the resurrection because they thought he was a heretic. There was another fellow named Johann Huss who comes along. He's born in 1369 in Prague. And he taught at the University of Prague. Now, both these guys were, were, were priests. That's, that's what their background was. And he was influenced by Wycliffe's teaching. And he raised concerns and disagreements as well. Now, this, this, is, this is over 100 years from Martin Luther that these concerns are being raised. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Rescuing the Gospel, he says... Speaking of Huss, he decried the doctrine of relics, which I'm not going to develop a lot of these thoughts if you don't know much about church history, but it was just a view that certain pieces of the past and people's lives had special powers associated with them. That if, if you got around them or if you touched them or you made a pilgrimage to visit them, that they could impart grace into your life in a particular way. Well, he decried the doctrine of relics, the idea that there are certain benefits given to those who pay a gift to view them. He rejected the notion that if someone touched something that was in the possession of a martyr, wisp of hair, piece of clothing, special grace was imparted from the martyr in heaven to the worshiper on earth. Huss taught that giving a gift for such a privilege denied the doctrine of grace. Now I'm going to finish that quote for a second. Let me just stop here for a second. That means of thinking, what he just did with that is fundamental to answering the question, would you protest? Because my guess is most of us would not protest unless we see that a new idea denies the doctrine of grace. And then I would hope that if you are a Christ follower, if your allegiance is to the God of the universe, you would rise up against anything that denies the doctrine of grace. Because it is the only hope we have to being reunited with God. So something has come up that John Huss paid attention to. And his response was to protest that. Then there was the matter of indulgences. If you paid a certain amount of money, you could purchase a document that guaranteed that you would be free from the temporal consequences of sin. Like Wycliffe, Huss argued that the Bible alone was the basis for spiritual authority, not the church, not councils, not traditions. The Bible is sufficient for spiritual guidance. It should be available to everyone. He taught that God could forgive sin without the necessity of a priest. He said that Christians need not obey an order unless it was found in Scripture. He criticized the people for worshiping images, believing in false miracles, and taking spiritual pilgrimage. He attacked the sale of indulgences. And he would face opposition for his protest. He would be called upon to recant his positions and to deny that he continued to believe them. And when he refused, he was burned at the stake on July 6th, 1415. This was not an easy thing to believe things that one saw in the Bible in this day. What's interesting at his death, Erwin Lutzer captures this thought. He says, the word hus in Czech is the word for goose. 
A priest who watched the execution reported that before Huss died, he said, You can cook this goose, but within a century a swan shall arise who will prevail. A century later, Martin Luther saw himself as the fulfillment of Huss's prophecy. He said, Holy Johann Huss prophesied about me when he wrote from his bohemian prison that they might now be roasting a goose, but in a hundred years they will hear a swan sing, which they will not be able to silence. And that is the way it will be, if God wills. And 102 years after Huss was martyr, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. So this protest didn't begin with Martin Luther. He is not the sole proprietor of the day in which ideas had drifted from their original moorings in the Bible. And people stood forward to say, wait, what about what this says versus what that says? And they protested. And it cost people their lives. And it altered the course of history. But protesting is not unique to church history. Protesting is all throughout the Bible as well. The Bible protests things quite often. I'm going to give you a running glance at that for a few moments today. Here, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. From the beginning, right, if you know your Bible, you know Acts chapter 4, the church has only been in existence since Acts chapter 2. Now, there's always been the people of God, I know that. But the church is birthed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. And there are teachings taking place on the cities of Jerusalem, city streets of Jerusalem. The apostles are proclaiming the gospel. And what they are saying is offensive to the traditional religions of the day. And so they are going to call these individuals to themselves and they are going to have a council meeting and cross-examine them. And this is going to sound very much like you'll hear from the Reformation Years later, that's still being done. But listen in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. And all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. You recognize that word in church history? You've heard of the Inquisition? This is the first Inquisition. By what power or by what name do you do this? And that's a huge question because that's an authority question. And we're going to talk about that next week. Who gives you the authority to say these things are true? You and I have to answer that question. 
every entity on the planet has to answer that question. Who gives you the authority to say something is true? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Listen, that's a protest. That's a highlighting of what you believe versus what you should have believed, isn't it? You believe this carpenter from Nazareth was just a rabble-rouser, loser, who shouldn't be followed. As a matter of fact, we can deal with him by putting him to death. That's what you believed. You actually had a belief in that. You're wrong. You do hear that in this passage, right? I'm not making this up. This isn't like some modern jerk who likes to disagree with things. They are explaining you were wrong when he says this. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. That's a narrow-minded statement if I ever heard one. I don't know if it is right, right? Is it still right? These dudes in the first century thought it was right, but, you know, we're modern people. I mean, we have iPhones and stuff, for goodness sake. We got technology. What do these guys know? Do you conclude that they're right? Because you do understand, by making that statement, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, alienates everything else but Christ. So does the Bible have, have as its greatest priority to try and get along with everybody? I mean, and and listen, this just makes sense, right? What if the world is wayward? What if the world is broken? What if it's fallen and it has ideas in it that aren't right? What if that's the case? That when the Bible steps into the room with us, it may make your position or mine to be at odds with it, might it? Isn't that possible? This is a group of religious people. These people were responsible for the religious world of that moment. They were leading people. They had doctrines and ideas and practices. They wore the robes of religion. They sat in the seats of authority of religion. These guys are fishermen. Nobody's standing. They didn't nail anything, but they protested something on the streets of Jerusalem. And in a sense... They were just protesting what was refusing to be believed. Listen, protest doesn't start in 1517, does it? 
Protesting religious thoughts doesn't start in 1517. I want to make sure that we don't just look at this historically. I want to make sure we land in, does this matter for us today? Because the question I want us to answer is, would you protest? Would you protest an idea that comes along and it's contrary to Acts chapter 4 verse 12? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And someone comes along and says, what about Islam? What about Buddhism? What about Hindu? What about people who just, I mean, come on, Keith, there are people out there that just... Just leading a decent life, man. They're just doing good to other people and they care about others and and they're not bad people. What about that? Will you protest that thought? In light of what this says. Would you protest? Would you own convictions that put you in a weird place? That's a weird place to be in. Never have somebody say, really, seriously, that's how God does this? The whole universe has got to funnel through Jesus of Nazareth or they're out. That sounds crazy. You want to own that? You want to try and defend that? You're called on to defend that. Or to reject the Bible. Because the authority of the scriptures has said these things and it will say it throughout There isn't any salvation anywhere else except through the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. Shortly after this encounter in Acts chapter 7, we encounter a man named Stephen. You back up into Acts chapter 6, you find out Stephen is protesting modern beliefs about how one gets right with God. And saying it's not in that way of believing, it's in believing in Jesus Christ who fulfilled all that. So that that has actually come to a close and transition to this now. And he's trying to explain that. Verse 9 of chapter 6, it says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, right? these are religious folks, it was called, and the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And they made some accusations about him and about what he was teaching that had some truth in it and exaggeration and distortions of what he was saying just to try and get the crowd against him. But in verse 14, they say something that's kind of interesting because it's got way too much truth in it. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. All right, so this is why Stephen's about to be taken before this court, this council, because it sounds to them like Jesus is going to change the customs of what we believe. Now, if you studied the Old Testament, you will know that Jesus fulfilled the customs of Moses and then transitioned into the next chapter of God. So in some ways, he was teaching that these have come to an end. And that's what you get, you fast forward in the end of Acts chapter 7. Stephen's speaking to his relatives. Speaking to people among them. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. 
according to the pattern that he had seen. See, you can't escape the tabernacle and Exodus. Exodus is everywhere, isn't it? That's why we studied Exodus, because it's everywhere in the Bible. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God. So he's just explaining God had a plan. He revealed himself a certain way to Moses. And this tabernacle thing was God. And it traveled with God's people. But now, these things have changed. Verse 49. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So we're transitioning into the new covenant. That comes through Jesus Christ. And then look what Stephen says. You, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. All right, so whatever you believe about Jesus Christ gathering of leaders and people, you are wrong. Is that what Stephen is saying to them? And based on your wrong premise, you have done the wrong thing with the Son of God. He came to fulfill everything that Moses said. He is the culmination of it all. He is the cornerstone of everything that's been in the Bible. And when he came, you murdered him because you believed wrongly about him. That's a protest, isn't it? That's the idea that there are hills to die on. That's the idea that there are certain things that you have to get right. You can't afford to get these things wrong. And Stephen knows that. There's no playing to the audience here. He knows that this is a non-negotiable hill to die on. If you fast forward to Acts chapter 17, I won't spend any time in this one. But it's a different setting, but it's an interesting setting because it's, it's a non-religious setting now. It's, it's the world and its philosophies and its ideas. It's Athens, Greece. It's the centerpiece of philosophical ideas and people doing life. Look here in Acts 17 verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I I perceive in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world, everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now you're reading that like a person raised in monotheism. They would not have been. They would have understood he is protesting what they believe. Because they believed in many gods who needed to be served with human hands. And so he is highlighting not that by bringing this up. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God 
in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of you. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. Which is what they would have been practicing at the time. So he's standing directly in the face of a set of beliefs. And he's saying not that. And then he's going to get much worse. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is, very, this is a very narrow statement being made by the Apostle Paul, isn't it? He's standing out, outside of Jewish tradition now, which was what the first guys were interacting with. Now he's interacting with the plural religions of the world. Your carved stones and your, your Greek and Roman gods that you have to serve, that you formed and fashioned. And he stands and he says, not that, but this very narrow one thing, this one man who lived the righteous life whom God validated by raising him from the dead. And now, based on him, God commands everyone everywhere to repent and put your faith in him and prepare for the day in which he will judge you. That's what Paul is saying. Do you understand the Bible's not trying to play well with the ideas surrounding it? Which, only if you're not a student of world religion do you not know this. The world religions are not trying to play well either. If you think that world religions accommodate Christianity, you have not studied world religions. Islam requires you To deny Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Islam comes along late in the game. I don't know if you know this. I mean, it's 600 AD before Islam shows its face on the religious world. And the first thing it does when it starts to write itself down and reveal itself is load up a gun and saying, Hey, you know, all you people that believe in that Jesus, you people of the book, you got it wrong. It nails its own theses to the wall, doesn't it? And says, you can't believe that. You have to believe this. So listen, debate is, inex- we can't escape it. It's in our world. It's in the Bible. You should be debating with ideas. All right, fast forward to Galatians. Galatians is going to be a huge, important book for us in the study of these five statements from the Reformation. And it's interesting, Martin Luther is, is brought to Wittenberg in order to be, he, he's, he's an ordained priest, he was a monk, an Augustinian order. He is brought to Wittenberg to teach at the university. He's a brilliant man, and they recognize that. And when he comes to teach, he, he not only teaches in the university, but he also preaches in the local churches that are there. It was two churches in Wittenberg. And he would preach in both of them. 
And his studies, both for the school setting and his studies, this is his studies leading up to 1517. If you know anything about the doctrine that's in these books, you're going to get why this man felt like he had been sleeping in asbestos and was itchy all over. Right, so he has studied the Psalms. Then he moves to Romans. Then he moves to Galatians. And then he moves to Hebrews. And then he goes back to the Psalms. And he stares at what he's being taught by the church. And he stares at what he's been reading in the Bible. And he gets itchy all over. And it's like, these things cannot be. And you hear in Galatians, long before, right, 1,500 years almost, 1,450 years before Martin Luther does anything, listen to the Apostle Paul in Galatians. Now, you have to understand something about the setting in Galatia. First century, a lot of religious traditions are in play in the first century. Lots and lots of them that are going to get turned upside down. Do you remember the disciples' first question to Jesus? After his resurrection, they're standing in the first chapter of Acts. Jesus, is it at this point that you're going to restore the, the, the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? They're asking about their tradition that they had been taught for years and years and years. That the descendant of David would restore the kingdom of David. So if Jesus is the Messiah, which they believed that he was, the disciples also believed, based on their traditional interpretation of the Old Testament, that Jesus would now restore the kingdom of David. They were thinking, we're going to be like part of the White House staff, man. We are in, baby. We are, we are part of the king's council because the kingdom of David is going to be restored right here. That's what they were asking. How many of you guys get that we don't always get it? It's like, no, you're going to have your head cut off. You're going to die. Uh, this is what's awaiting you guys. You don't have a cool office next to the Oval Office. That's not going to be happening for any of you. But that's what they thought. And so you have these religious traditions that come from a religious book. They come from the Bible. So the Galatians were a people that had an, an allegiance of tradition to the Old Testament teachings of Scripture. And what made the Old Testament people, the Old Testament people was the mark of circumcision. Circumcision. And so when Christianity comes along and it, it doesn't say anything about circumcision, it doesn't draw any attention to the practice of circumcision. It doesn't recommend it. It doesn't require it. It, it doesn't teach on it. These guys are like, whoa, flag on the play. We've always known the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the real God of the universe is a part of what they believe. Circumcision needs to be part of getting right with God. So this group fought for, if you will, the sacrament of circumcision in the church in Galatia. That's what they're fighting over when you read this book. To that, Paul responds. These are just some highlights. We won't spend time in them much today. Galatians 1 verse 6. Paul says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As, I, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Where does Martin Luther get the idea to nail some theses to the door? The second he hears something that sounds like another gospel, a distorted gospel. Now, listen, every Christian should have that as a living category in your understanding in this world. There are ideas that if they shift into the wrong place, they are now contrary to the gospel. They are distorting the gospel. They are destroying the gospel. That's what's happening in Galatia. This is not a 1517 thing. This is the year 50-something AD that this is happening. And the Apostle Paul is taking notice of it. And he's saying, all you got to do is add that little thought. Because listen, they weren't saying abandon Christ. They weren't denying that Christ had done what he had done. They were just adding to what he had done. The sacrament of circumcision. They're just adding that. That's what freaks Paul out. He says, guys, if you, if you add that, you destroy the gospel. Really? It's that serious. Yeah. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. says, yet we know... That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why one of the weeks here is going to be one of the sola, the Latin solas of the Reformation was sola fide. By faith alone are we saved. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And works of the law is this umbrella statement Of what you must do in order to satisfy God. And the Judaizers were saying you must be circumcised. And Paul says if there is a must of what a human being must do. That's no longer grace. You have destroyed the gospel with your little bitty human contribution. Come on Paul you overreacting here? This is the most scathing letter Paul writes. You think the Corinthian letter is bad. It's not nearly as bad as this. You, look at verse chapter 3. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who tricked you into believing this? That something about what you did could be added to what Christ did to make you okay with God? Where did you get that idea from? He says it's the worst thing you could possibly believe. Look what he says in chapter 5. Verse 2. Look. 
Paul says. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This is enormous. What what his ears were tuned to hear, which is what made him protest, was the second he heard any human contribution getting introduced to what saves man and makes him right with God, nullifies the whole thing. That's what Paul heard. Be clear. These people were not denying Christ. They were not saying he, he never came. That's all a fable made up. He was never resurrected. They weren't saying any of those things. They were just requiring that in addition to what you believe about him, you need to perform at least this and be circumcised. And Paul has clear ears to hear. That's, that's trouble. Because if we're saved, it is by grace alone. By the achievement of Christ alone. Not by something that you and I did, even if it's a thimbleful added to the ocean of Christ. That would spoil it right there. When you read carefully the New Testament, you find God is allergic to human contribution in this category. And he designed a salvation that eliminates boasting. Otherwise, you and I would say, did you see my thimble? Listen, I know it's a vast ocean, but the reason I'll be in heaven one day is because I just did my little thimble. So, you know, my thimble looks a little bigger than your thimble. Right? God designed salvation where there's no boasting in it. Because all you did was receive what was done completely by another in your place. The only boasting is our boasting is in Christ, right? Listen, Galatians, I think I put this in your outline. Galatians gives us an early insight into the nature of the gospel and the protest-worthy content that it contained. That needed to be guarded from the introduction of human traditions or any other addition. What's happening in the Reformation is what was happening in Galatians, which would, should be happening for us as well. The gospel sits inside of us in such a way that it protests other ideas. Therefore, we protest other ideas. At one point, Luther was simply here reiterating Galatians, and he was called upon to recant. 1517, he nails these theses up. Debate begins to take place, right? Word travels slow, but eventually they duplicated these things. That wasn't what he wanted to do, but it happened anyway. They duplicated them and published them, circulated them. Debate began. A lot of people began to see, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, this one makes sense to me too. So there began to be this uprising. In the meantime, Luther's beginning to unpack his 95 Theses and he's writing more and he's writing more and those writings are being heard and his teachings are being given. So four years after 
he is called, summoned to the diet of worms, and that, that's not a, it's not a kitchen discussion. Uh, it was not what they ate at the meeting that he was at. It was, the diet was a meeting that they were having in the town of worms in Germany. And he is asked at one point to recant his writings and the positions that he has taken. And his response should be every Christian's response. He says, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God, help me. Amen. And that stance and that moment changed the world. But what he is doing there, I don't want just to be, hey, hey, we learned some cool things about Martin Luther. No, no, I want to ask you and I the question. Is that what's inside of me and you? That there are certain things to be believed in a particular specific way? That there are hills to die on that are not negotiable? They don't move. They don't accommodate other views. They stand in place. And there's nowhere else for me to stand. This is the only ground to stand on. You can agree or disagree. You can think I'm an idiot. And I've lost my mind. But I have no other place to stand. I am convicted by the scriptures. I am, how do you say it? My conscience is captive to the word of God. That should not just be Martin Luther. That should be every Christian's conscience should be captive to something, not just anything, to the word of God. And and that visits our day, doesn't it? Because there are things today that are coming along, declaring that humanity should believe in them. And yet the gospel has already taken this ground from us. This last thought from R.C. Sproul. Kurt, you can come back up here. The Reformation was simply a commitment to biblical truth. And as long as there are departures from biblical truth, we have to be involved in the task of Reformation. Not just Martin Luther. We have to be involved today. D.A. Carson says the Reformers read their own times well. They truly understood where the fault lines lay in their own time and place. Some of the same issues prevail today. What we should take away from the reformers in this regard is not simply the list of topics on which they majored, but the importance of understanding our times and learning how to engage our times with the truth of Scripture. Our day is a very different day than 1517. Very different. The first thing you and I will have to embrace is the idea that it's okay, it's right, it's good, it's a call of God to believe what God has said at all cost. Even if it disagrees with what is popular, what is trendy, 
what sounds nicer. Right? If I paint, paint an image of nice and then I tell you that Christians are nice, now I obligate you to be nice. Do you ever have anybody do that to you in a discussion? They tell you what nice is and then they tell you you're a Christian so you're supposed to be nice. And so that kind of just pulls the legs right underneath you, right? You, you can't stand on anything that makes anybody else feel like they're wrong. Galatians is not a nice book, is it? It is a cry that there is something to be believed specific and there is no compromising that belief. So as we study through these dimensions in the coming weeks, you have a little outline there. Next week we will study sola scriptura. I'll explain what those solas mean. But that the authority of what is believed is through the scriptures alone. We'll look at that next week to see what that means. And the week after that, sola gratia. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the battle cries of the Reformation, and they are worthy of our attention today. Those ideas have not gone away. They have not been displaced by something else. They're not trends. They're core doctrines to the Christian faith. All right, so let me, let me say two things. I'm going to close. Pray for us. All right, Keith, how should I prepare, respond, engage this particular series? Right, let me just two audiences in how to respond, how to prepare, how to listen. One would be postmoderns, which would be all of us in this room. We have grown up in a postmodern setting. As you listen and you observe these reformers and you observe the history and you observe these principles and truths, question, do you have convictions that are non-negotiable? Do you have convictions for which you stand no matter what anybody else says? Or have you become like your culture that feels obligated to validate, support, be at peace with all other ideas somehow. All right, so if you're postmodern, that would be, let me listen to see. Do I sound like people in history? Do I sound like the Bible with hills to die on in my life that I stand for? Secondly, how do I listen to this as a Catholic? Right, I'm blessed, amazed, encouraged, grateful for the privilege that we have to minister to folks who come from a Catholic background, people that, are, that will be here on a Sunday that are still attending Catholic Church. I run into them, they tell me that. It is, it is a joy to be able to serve and care for you and encourage you in the knowledge of the Word of God. We don't take that lightly. But I recognize that the Protestant Reformation was a protest of things in the past that may or may not reflect something that you believe. Everybody believes at their own individual level. I talked to a lady just last week. She's been here among us for about a year. She had, all she's ever known in her life was Catholic, being Catholic. 
She moved to New Orleans. She knew some family members that came to church here. So she started coming to church here. And now she's going back home to live where her family is from. And I stood having a conversation with her at the back of that aisle last week, and she was in tears. She waited until I was done talking to everybody else. She just wanted to say thank you for helping her to see the Bible and the impact that it's had in her life that it hadn't had before. And she was going back home. Was there a church that I could recommend to her back where she was going? Listen, at some point, listen, I, I grew up Catholic. I'm from here. I'm from New Orleans. So what I would recommend to you to do as we study through some of these things is, is the same thing I did. I, I started reading the Bible. And I read the Bible and I saw things in the Bible that I hadn't seen before. They were new to me. So I read the Bible some more. Eventually, I, I came to know Christ in that time. And so I kept reading the Bible some more and I kept noticing some things that were different than what I had believed. So after a couple of years of that, I got to the place where I said, why did I believe what I believed? I never asked myself that question. I had never tried to figure out why did I believe the specific things that I had believed at this point in my life about God, about how to relate to him, about what salvation was, about what church I could or could not be a part of. So after a couple of years of reading the Bible, I sat down and I researched and I went back and I studied what I'd been taught. For the first time, I was looking for it because I wanted to know. Not because I had to know, because I wanted to know. I would suggest that you engage the next five weeks like that. And you say, Lord, because I know this is true. You come and tell me this is true. And I know this is true because I experience it as being true. I, I know that when you're amongst the people of God that are in this room with you, and I know that when you sit down and listen to the word of God preached every week, I know you are affected by it differently than what you were affected by before you came here there's a reason why that's true and it may be a challenging thing for you to revisit ideas and thoughts that are associated with our lives right my whole life was wrapped up family extended family etc this was an awkward thing to do for me probably for you too it was an awkward thing for Stephen to stand in the midst of his history his traditions his people fathers as he spoke to them and he began to explain to them something that they had not seen that was awkward for them it was awkward but it was needed because at the end of the day and this is what we'll teach on next week at the end of the day this word is like no other word that's ever been spoken or talked about or given that's why the apostle paul can stare at this word not human traditions, not anything that was added to it, and say in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone, we, an angel from heaven, anybody comes behind this gospel and teaches to you something contrary to it, let him be accursed. How can he say that if there's problems with this thing? Or that it needs to be added to? Or if it's lacking something? He pointed to this And he said, this and this alone. And if anybody comes to you with another idea and he tries to add to it or take away from this, do not listen. 
So I hope what this series would do for you is to examine why do I believe what I believe? And at the end of the day, I hope all of us would see something in Scripture that we would say, that's a hill to die on. And yes, I would protest. For the sake of that, I would. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are that your word and your work have the final say-so. Lord, I've had so many ideas in life, as have so many people have had ideas in life. But Lord, we need a trustworthy centerpiece that everything else has to answer to. And that's Lord, Lord, that's what we have in your word. And in your word, we have this gospel of grace accomplished fully by your son as he came to take our place to give us right standing with you. Oh Lord, the great relief that that is, the great joy and the great hope that that is, that we can be right with you through what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, help us more fully understand that. Help us see that more clearly. Help us know you more deeply as we look back in history. We see these truths lived out, people living and dying for them for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me encourage you guys. We're going to do something special during this study. Beginning next week in the School of the Word, the School of the Word will be about the Reformation. Uh, there's a fellow named Stephen Nichols. who We've got a video series from Stephen. He's an excellent teacher, uh, specialist on the Reformation. He's gonna, we're going to stay in step with them. So like we did an introduction to the Reformation today. Next Sunday in the School of the Word, you can come and hear an introduction that Stephen Nichols will do. He'll give you a lot more of the history and background. Next week, I'm going to preach on the uh, Scriptures alone being the authority of God. He will do that in his teaching and give you more of the history of that. So you can get a little bit more of the Bible from us, a little bit more of the history from him. So if you want to know more about the Reformation, next Sunday, School of the Word uh, is the place to be, 845, upstairs. Bless you guys.